Amen. Well, today um, in chapter 3, we come to the final of the seven letters that were written to the seven churches. Today, uh, being the last letter, is the church at Laodicea. Now, among these seven churches, if you'll remember us going through these seven letters, five of them are threatened with judgment. Ephesus was on the verge of judgment because it had left its first love. Even though it was still doctrinally strong, it had moved away from a sincere love for Christ. And then the church at Pergamum was on the verge of judgment because it was, uh, it wasn't yet denying the faith, but it was compromising with sin. Jesus speaks a word of judgment to them. Then we had the church at Thyatira. Entered into full-blown compromise with sin. It was overlooking. It was tolerating sin. Jesus speaks judgment to them. And then Sardis uh, was, the, was the dead church. Uh, there was virtually no spiritual life uh, in that church at all. Even though there were a few genuine believers within that church, Jesus says, you're dead. And He calls them to repent. He calls judgment upon them. Uh, Laodicea, I think, has the distinction of being the only church which Jesus says absolutely nothing good about them. Uh, This is the most threatening, rebuking letter that we've seen so far. Laodicea is probably the most famous of all these seven churches. We know them as what? The lukewarm church. We, we, We remember them probably more than we do the others. There's no heresy. There's no persecution. There's No immorality. None of these describes the problem of this church in Laodicea. This church is marked by spiritual mediocrity. That's what Jesus is saying about them. Jesus calls on this church, Laodicea, to recognize that their needs go deeper than what their resources can handle. And we'll see that as we go through this. Their problem is not physical or economic, but spiritual. Laodicea was a proud, self-sufficient church. Which you've got to stop and think, if the church is proud and self-sufficient, it's made up of what? Proud and self-sufficient individual people. Now, their abundant physical and economic resources had dulled their need for God and the gospel, and Jesus calls them to recognize that deep need they have so that they'll stop being lukewarm. He's telling them, there's a way you can move away from that. And what Jesus has said to these seven churches was appropriate to the needs of each one of those churches. Again, these are seven literal churches that existed in this time in the New Testament. They were literal churches, but these churches, as we've come to understand, are representative of what? All churches throughout the history of the church. It was appropriate for the needs of each church, but we can't forget what he said. It's still applicable because the same problems exist in the church today. So if you're looking at your handout, the outline there, the main idea is rather simple. The danger of relying on self rather than Jesus. All these churches faced a danger. And if you're thinking, well, we heard about Philadelphia. I didn't hear you mention a danger for them. Well, I failed to give you one. They were the weak church, remember? But Jesus says He's going to open the doors for those weak churches to do those things. They may have the danger of self-doubt. We're weak and small. And we can't do those things. But Jesus says, oh no, don't go there. I am the king. I can open those doors for you. They had a danger. 
But the Laodicea church, they had the danger of relying on self rather than Jesus. And I, and I put on your handout there this. The church must fight self-sufficiency by looking to Jesus and relying on Him fully for everything. This applies to the church, but this applies to Christians as, as individual Christians. We've we got to fight this idea of self-sufficiency. We, we know what we are. We know who we are. We, we're these uh, proud, self-sufficient people. And the church cannot do that. We've got to look to Jesus and rely on Him for everything. You know, He's called us to a mission, church. And we call it the Great Commission, right? There's a reason that word great's in front of it because it's God's commission. And we're not going to fulfill that mission that God's called us to be on, being self-sufficient within ourselves. It's going to have to be Him we go to, regardless of what we've got. All that we've got, we've got because He has given it to us. And we need to go to Him and call out and cry out to Him in dependence on Him to fulfill that mission. So if you're looking at your handout, verse 14, we've outlined it this way. Jesus says, I'm the one to trust. I am the one to trust. Now, the description of Jesus that opens the letter, as in all the other letters, helps us, it prepares us to accept its message and do so with a proper attitude. You notice in every letter, Jesus has something to say about Himself to get our attention so that what's coming next, we accept it and we have the proper attitude about it. So if you're looking there, verse 14, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's how Jesus describes Himself to this church. And His description in every letter has something to do with their particular situation. Just as with all the other letters, this one is the same. John is told to write to the angel, the messenger, the one who's the representative of this church. This last letter, as we've said, is to the church at Laodicea. Now, a little background on Laodicea. It helps us to understand some background because it helps us to understand what Jesus is saying about them and why He's saying what He's saying. Laodicea was a very wealthy commercial center. It was known for banking, the manufacturing of cloth, and it had a famous medical school there. Those are very important things. Let me say those again. Because when we start going through this, you're going to go, oh, that's why Jesus is saying the things He's saying. They were known for banking, the manufacturing of cloth, and a famous medical school. Now, this city was so wealthy that following a devastating earthquake in A.D. 60, you're thinking, yeah, that's before my time. It's before all of our time. Laodicea, after a massive earthquake, they had so, so much riches. They had so much wealth that they were able to rebuild themselves without any help from Rome whatsoever. They were a, a city who was under the Roman authorities. But they didn't need anything from anybody to rebuild themselves. One historian, a Roman historian named Tacticus, said about Laodicea, Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. Imagine being a city under the Roman authority and you have such wealth that when an earthquake comes and wipes you out, you need no help. It would be kind of like... Um, Newburn, Wilmington, after Hurricane Florence. Wiped out, 
and they need no help from the federal government whatsoever. They are so wealthy that they can come in within several months, they're rebuilt and they're functioning again. That's what this city was. The city and the church, unfortunately, were a whole lot alike. They saw themselves as self-sufficient. They didn't need the help of anyone, including God. I always find that hard to believe. You call yourself a church, but you don't need God's help. They need the help of anyone, including God. They were, they were, just, they were just fine by themselves. But we're going to find out they were badly deceived. Despite its prosperity, the city didn't have one major weakness. Despite all its wealth, it had one weakness. And that weakness was this. Are you ready? This is going to make a lot of sense when we start going through this. They had poor drinking water. One commentator said this about their drinking water. The water was so distasteful that visitors, unprepared for its lukewarm flavor, would often vomit after drinking it. You're like, where's the bottle of water when you go to LC? Like, like, when you go to Mexico, what do they say? Don't drink the water. Laodicea would have been, you know, they'd have been glad to have had bottled water in their day. Now, notice how, just as with all the other churches, notice how Jesus introduces himself. First, Jesus says, I am the Amen. We finished the background there. We're starting into this. He says, I am the Amen. The word Amen, we, we hear that word. We're, we're like, I know what that word is. It's often used in Scripture to affirm the truthfulness of a statement. When someone's saying a true statement, sometimes we say that word, Amen. It's an affirmation. It's a kind of verbal guarantee that what's being said is true. Jesus is the firm, fixed, certain, unchangeable Amen. That's what He's saying. Because He is true all the time, in every way, all His ways are true, and all that He promises is true. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, which would be a verse that you would do well to make note of and think about and meditate on, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Jesus. How many of God's promises find their yes in Jesus? Some of them? All of them. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Jesus says, I'm the Amen. I'm the true one. I have always been true. All of God's promises find their amen in me. Then second, Jesus says He's the faithful and true witness. Not only does He validate what God has said and what God has promised, but whatever Jesus says is true. It's kind of sound like it's a repetitive thing. If He speaks, it's faithful and true. He's completely trustworthy. Then, the third one there, He says, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation does not mean that He is God's first creation, but that He is the one who began God's creation. There's a difference. He's not the beginning of God's creation. He's the one who began God's creation. And we know that because we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Again, that doesn't mean that He's the first who was ever created. Rather, it means that Jesus is the foremost of all creation. And Colossians chapter 1 continues and says, By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. 
He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Not only did Jesus create everything, but He does what? He holds it all together. When you got up this morning, you know who was holding your world together? Jesus was. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the primary one from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Do you hear that? What is He saying to this church? You ain't going to get it done on your own, being mediocre or lukewarm. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the supreme one. I'm the sovereign one. The one who created everything that exists and everyone who exists. He is the uncreated source of creation. That's a pretty powerful resume, isn't it? He's God. God's speaking here. You don't need me, but you say, but I know. So why does Jesus make this powerful statement about Himself? It's because the church at Laodicea had a faulty view of Jesus. And can I tell you, there's a lot of churches today have a faulty view of who Jesus is. Don't be naive about churches who put a sign out. They, a lot of churches have a faulty view of Jesus. And if, if you have a wrong view of Jesus, can I let you in on something? It has terrible effects. And we're going to see those effects here. Notice in verses 15 through 17, we've outlined these as Jesus says, Self-reliance makes me sick. Self-reliance makes me sick. Verse 15, Jesus knew the church at Laodicea. I know your works. Notice that Jesus has no praise for this church whatsoever. All the other ones, He had a... Something to say good about them. But this church, he has nothing good at all to say about them. No praise for this church. What kind of spiritual shape were they in? Jesus says, you are neither cold or hot. You're neither one. Then he says, I would that you were either cold or hot. Now, sometimes we read that and go, well, Jesus is saying, I would rather you be one or the other. That's not what Jesus is suggesting. He's not suggesting the church would be either hot for Jesus or completely cold. It's Jesus' way of saying that they were useless. That's what He's saying. They were not doing anything to glorify Jesus or to advance the gospel. He's not saying, I want to make sure you understand, He's not saying, well, be one or the other. Just pick one and do the other. No, what He's saying by that statement is you're absolutely useless. You're doing nothing to glorify me and my gospel, but yet you put, you put the name out there. Now before we move to verse 16, I'm going to give you an illustration that will help us when we read verse 16. You know, um, every morning when I get up, I go to my study, and I flip the light on, and I go to the kitchen, and I hit the button on the Keurig to, to get the water hot. And so I grab my chocolate chip muffin, and my cup of coffee, and I stagger back to my study, and I sit down. It takes a few minutes for it to, you know, me get woken up, and then I open the Bible, and I, I begin reading. And I take a bite of that muffin and a sip of coffee, but sometimes I get caught up in the reading of the Bible. Good thing, right? And I forget the coffee. And you know what happens, right? 
You know, there's nothing more disgusting than reaching for a, a cup of coffee, expecting it to be full of wonderful hot coffee, only to find out not exactly cold, but just on the cool side of room temperature, lukewarm, right? How many of y'all done that? Uh, for sure, uh, there's nothing motivating about that drink for you. I run back to the kitchen, open the microwave, throw it in, reheat. Actually, when you when you take that drink, it's kind of you're just like that's wrong, right? This is distasteful. What do you want to do? You don't do it. You were near the sink. What would you do? You want to get rid of that, right? Verse sixteen. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, because of lukewarmness, just as you would that lukewarm coffee, He'll spit you out. Actually, the Greek word is stronger than that. The Greek word means to, are you ready? Vomit. That's what that word means. Remember what people would do when they drank the water in Laodicea? Mediocrity isn't fit for Jesus. It disgusts me. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us exactly what the lukewarmness in the church looked like. For you say, those are very important words. What did Jesus just say prior to that? I know. You say, I know. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable. Some of you have a translation that says miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Man, there's a vast difference in what Jesus knows and what what they say, right? Man, it's completely on opposite ends. He says, not only are you mediocre, but you're deceived. The church at Laodicea was full of deceived Christians. Jesus says, I know, but you say. You say this, but I know. Remember what He said about Himself in verse 14? There's a major difference. They, they were way off base in who they thought they were. You say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. They needed nothing or no one, including Jesus. Jesus, to be sure, has a totally different view of His church. You, in other words, you don't know. That's what Jesus said. You do not know. You say one thing, but the truth is another. There's a huge cloud of deception that hangs over you, Laodicea. Jesus says, here's the truth. You don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, a church or a Christian who can say, I need nothing, will not cling to Jesus in everything. Spiritually speaking, this church, these Christians were in a sad situation, were they not? I don't know about you, but if I'm hearing that letter read from my angel or my messenger, I'm kind of like, man, this is coming from Jesus. We're really messed up. We thought we were this, but Jesus says this about us. Some of us need to be reminded of the absolute purity of God. That's why I read Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Some of us need to be reminded of the absolute purity of God. Doing so will bring about recognition of your impurity. 
All of us can, and we'll slip into thinking we're doing pretty well, right? You ever been deceived thinking you're a Christian? Well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm moving along. We got our fire insurance. I got my ticket to heaven. But Jesus says you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus doesn't like mediocrity. He doesn't like lukewarm Christians. Here's what I want to say. We cannot, we must not be indifferent or ignorant to our spiritual condition. But we must continually be assessing our spiritual condition in light of God's Word. That's why it's so important to read the Word of God. If you profess Jesus and you don't read His Word, there's something wrong. Because the Word of God will assess your condition and the Spirit will speak to your heart and say, you need to do this. We have to face up to our true spiritual condition. Jesus knows who we are and what we're doing. You say, but Jesus knows. We must remind ourselves of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. We must allow the reality of the gospel to speak to us. It's a continuous ongoing need for Jesus. Some of us were having a conversation about that this morning. If, if we're not reminded of our constant ongoing need for the gospel, if we, if, we, if we don't continue to see that Jesus is our greatest need, other needs will suddenly become more pressing and more significant, right? If we're not careful, if we're not fighting against the fleshly desires of you know, felt needs, which are really false needs, we'll find that the world and its agenda is what's important to us. You know that, Christian. You begin to get weak and spiritually weak and kind of lukewarm. What becomes the priority for you? The world and what it thinks. And as a result, God and the gospel and the kingdom become unimportant to you. Can I tell you, Christian, the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life is be on mission for the Lord Jesus to reach a lost and dying world. There is nothing else you'll ever do that's more important. Now, you can do that in various ways. You can work a public job. You can be in the college classroom. You can be in the high school classroom. You can be out on the tractor in the field. You can be in the community. But you are on mission for Jesus wherever you go. Maybe you're a person who hasn't thought much beyond your physical life. And you're not really given much thought to the idea that you could have everything and yet have nothing. More money, more stuff is not what you need. Just ask someone who's been around for a while. The problem is much deeper. The problem is that you were made to know and love God, but you rebel against God and worship yourself and other people and other things. But here's the good news. If these words describe you, God is merciful trying to bring you to a place where you understand that your sin separates you from Him. But Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. And this means everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus is made right with God. Now here's my question to you. Some of you sitting here today in that boat, what keeps you from trusting Jesus today? What is it that keeps you from turning from your sin, unbeliever, and trusting in Christ. What is it that keeps you from that? What is it that keeps you uh, 
professing believer who's lukewarm from repenting of your sin and turning back to God and following Him. What is it that keeps you from doing that? Jesus says, I'm merciful. Come to me. Look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, rely on me. Jesus introduced Himself to the church in Laodicea as the faithful and true witness. And now He gives them, now he gives them faithful and true witness. Now, there were three things. I mentioned these earlier, but I'm going to flesh them out a little bit more. There were three things to which the city of Laodicea was famous. Financial riches. They had the money. Gold. They had plenty of gold. They were financially... Man, it was, as the old saying goes, it was running out their ears. It was a thriving trade market and fine garments. And it was known, once again, for its medical school. Notice verse 18. Listen, they've got all that, right? Notice what Jesus says. I counsel, or I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that what? You may be rich. You think you're rich, but you're, you're miserable. You're poor, naked, and blind. Come to me. Buy gold from me that's been refined by the fire, so that you may be rich. The church in Laodicea, the church today, does not need the world's gold. We need the gold that we can get from Jesus. You understand he's talking symbolically here. He's not talking about, oh, can I go home today and pray and Jesus will give me gold? No, that's not what he's saying. Let me help you understand what he's saying here. When you have an idea or a hope that your life is about to get better, what is it that stirs up that hope? Be honest. It's the thought of having what? More money. What is it that stirs up your hope? Is it the thought of having more money or is it the thought of having more of Jesus? Man, that, the rubber meets the road there, right? Does money stir up my hope or does having more of Jesus stir up my hope? Do you think that more money, a better job, another relationship is going to make you happier? Do you think that fill in the blank is going to make you happier? Or do you think that a deeper understanding of Jesus and His gospel will increase your joy? Do you want more? Fill in the blank. Or do you want to see more of God's glory so that you'll be more secure in Him? Jesus says, I counsel, I advise you, come to me, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And then notice what He says, in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be seen. Now, Laodicea was famous for, remember I saying cloth and these fine garments? But they were well known, famously known for this glossy black wool that come from the sheep they had. They were well known for this glossy black wool. Clothing made from wool was a desirable product. Ladies, uh, you think Vera Wang or Kate Spade, okay? That's what was going on in Laodicea. You're thinking, I ain't wearing no black wool. I know what that feel like. But that was a, that was a big deal. 
But for all their fancy, elegant clothing before the eyes of Jesus, they were exposed in what? He says, you're naked. I don't care what you've got, how much you've got, how well known you are for it. Church, you are, you're, you're naked. I'm exposing the shamefulness of your sin. But we're told that Jesus has better garments for them. Notice what He says, buy from me, what? White garments. So that, that's the third time, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Everywhere in the book of Revelation, white garments signify holiness. White garments signify holiness. They're the gift of Jesus to all who come to Him. That's what He's saying. Trusting in Jesus and only Jesus will result in a person being clothed in white garments. Only Jesus, listen, only Jesus can cover our shame and our nakedness. Jesus looks and we say, but He knows. And He's the only one who can cover that. Verse 18, Jesus says, buy from Him. What does He say there? Salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Again, supposedly the medical school in Laodicea made an ointment that was used to treat blindness. And what is Jesus saying about them? Now you need to come to me. I'll give you the ointment so that you what? You can really see. The members of the Laodicean church were the ones who were really blind and thinking they had plenty of material wealth and it meant they had no need for Jesus. Stop and think about it. If you've got everything in the world that you need, and someone comes talking to you about Jesus, you're like, I don't need Jesus. I've got everything I need. I remember going with a, a pastor one time. I was a young Christian. And we had another guy in the car with us, and we pulled up this guy's house, and I mean, he had it all. If they made it, he had it. And one guy looked at the pastor and said, what in the world are we going to tell this guy he needs? pastor looked at him and said, we're going to tell him he needs Jesus. Because that's what he needs. Jesus is the true eyesight. He opens blind eyes to see the truth. The truth that says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, buy from me. Jesus says, all that your soul needs, buy it from me. Now, here's where I think there's a, an illusion coming to out of the Old Testament in what Jesus is saying here. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. When you put those two together, here's what Jesus is saying. You come buy from me what you need without money and it's not going to cost you one red cent. It's all free. It's by faith, by trusting in me, come by true riches to undo the bankruptcy of your soul. Jesus says, I offer what you really need. It's all in Him. Don't say, I have need of nothing, because you say, but I know. Let me ask you this. There's a, a way of applying this. If you could choose between two things, are you listening? Punch your neighbor. They're nodding off. Punch them. If you could choose between two things, a lottery ticket that was guaranteed 
guaranteed to win a billion dollars or an empty bank account with the assurance that God will provide for you and meet your needs if you trust Him, which would you choose? Some of you are thinking this week, man, a billion dollars. Where's the nearest convenience store? Which would you choose? Would you choose to have more money than you could ever spend, or would you choose the opportunity to trust God? Second, which would you choose? To have your hopes and dreams realized in our political system by seeing all your candidates elected and all your political issues dealt with the way you want them handled? Or would you choose the opportunity to identify yourself as an alien and a stranger from whom this world is not your home? Which would you choose? And the rubber meets the road, right? Y'all do know there was a billion dollar lottery here in the last... Right? And we're about to go into elections, right? Which would you choose? Verse 19. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus says, my strong message of rebuke comes from what? I'm saying this to you because I love you. Do you see that? Don't overlook that. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. People can be rebuked for sin and it still be a loving thing to do. Some of you are going, well, that's good for Jesus, but not us. Hold on. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How are we supposed to love? Just like Jesus loves us. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the ways that Jesus loves is by rebuking sin. Jesus loves you enough to confront your sin. He loves you enough to give you His Word, the Bible. He loves you enough to call you to zeal and repentance. And He says, you need to love just as I have loved. Rebuking sin is a loving thing to do. The next thing Jesus says is uh, a well-known verse that's often used uh, when we speak of evangelism. Notice what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. Some of you have a translation that uses the word sup. That's what that word means, eat. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, listen carefully. If you separate this verse from its context, okay, if you take this verse completely out of its context, then it's an evangelistic verse. Okay? Pull it out. Have it out by itself. It can be used that way. But the evangelistic use of the verse does not fit the meaning of the verse in the context. This is not an evangelistic verse... Because Jesus is talking to who? The church. He's not talking to lost people. He's talking to the church. Churches are biblically... That's a key word there. Churches are biblically made up of believers. Believers who have already opened the door to Jesus. Jesus is not inviting the church in Laodicea to believe in Him. This is not a call to the unconverted. It's a call to the church. Notice verse 20. 
Again, up to this point, Jesus has been speaking to the church corporately. Now Jesus is speaking to each member of the church individually. Notice what he says, if anyone. That, that narrows it down from church to individuals. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Each of us must respond to Jesus for himself or herself. Jesus knocks at the door by his word. Jesus calls to wayward, lukewarm Christians, caught up in spiritual mediocrity and worldly materialism. He calls them individually. Remember what he said in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove. The people of this congregation, Laodicea, they sang the hymns, they prayed the prayers, they heard the preaching, they even took the Lord's Supper, but they had no communion with Jesus. And yet, verse 20, listen, you heard what I said. This is the congregation. They went through the motions. They did the things. They, but they had no communion with Jesus. But notice what Jesus says in verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll do what? I'll come into him, eat with him, and he with me. Jesus is asking for re-entry into your life. To fellowship with you. He wants back into that intimate communion with you. Jesus is calling for re-entry into your life. He's pleading with you to come back. That's what He's doing here. He's talking to the church whole, but He's gotten this down to individual people. Again, this eating is symbolic. What do we, what do we normally like to do, especially Baptists, to call it fellowship? Throw some food on the table and we're good to go, Right? That's what Jesus' point is here. It's not about sitting out and eating. It's about coming in and that intimate fellowship with Him. Do you long for a deeper understanding of a relationship with Jesus? Could it be that the absence of fellowship with Jesus is actually an indicator of your lukewarmness, your mediocrity, your backsliding, your walking in sin? Jesus says, be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove. Be zealous and repent. Also, Jesus is saying to His church, if they will be zealous and repent, they will know His presence. He will be in the church, not outside it. Do you see that? He's outside the door. You've heard the old saying, Jesus is trying to get into a lot of churches. He'll fellowship with them. They will eat with Him. Again, eating is symbolic of fellowship. In this case, for the church to open the door to Jesus means that the church will rely on Jesus and not themselves. And it means that the church will do what Jesus expects it to do rather than what they think they should do or what the world expects them to do. Remember, you say, I know. Verse 21, 22, quickly. Jesus says, hear my promises. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes... Who's the overcomer? How, how does someone conquer? The answer is in, as I also conquered. Here's the question I have for you. How did Jesus conquer? How did Jesus overcome the world? By the cross. That is the problem for those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is the pattern 
for those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those who become zealous and repent and open to Him. Those who overcome, who persevere in their profession. Those who remain faithful to the end. What does Jesus say? I will grant to Him to set me on my throne as I also set down my Father on His throne. Here's what Jesus is saying. Summer, there's a lot here. We don't have time. Here's what Jesus is saying. He said, I'll take you all the way to glory and you'll sit on my throne with me. Those who become zealous and repent and open up to Him, those who overcome, who persevere in their profession, those who remain faithful to the end, Jesus says they will reign with Him in His heavenly kingdom. How many of you want to reign in a kingdom with Jesus? I don't know about you, that sounds pretty good to me. Those who become zealous and repent. Those who remain faithful to the end. They not only get heaven, they get a throne. The idea is is to enjoy fellowship with Jesus in heaven throughout all eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 22. Just as with all the other letters to those other six churches that we've studied, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I've said this for six weeks now. Do you hear? Do you have ears for what Jesus is saying? The question is, have you trusted in Jesus as Savior? He's the only Savior. He died for sinners. He died to save all who will believe in Him. If you have, if you've believed in Him, then here's my challenge to you. Practice your profession. You say, but I know. Your life should match your profession. And if it doesn't, Jesus says, open your life to Him who knocks at the door and let Him back in so there will be fellowship with Him. I know this in my own life as a pastor. If I'm not careful, I can become a lukewarm Christian. We can enjoy the comfortable life materially and go through the motions of religion acting as though we're spiritual. But in the right place at the right time, we can say the right things and yet still neglect Jesus. Here's what I told myself this week. Here's what I'm going to call you to do. Don't live a life that causes Jesus to want to spit you out. There's some of you here today who have never trusted in Jesus. As I said before, if that's the case, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Him, today's the day. Today is the day. God became a man and died in your place to redeem you from your sins. And one last thing. The big question today is, is not, is God speaking? The really big question is, are you listening? Let's pray.